0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The poet Emily Dickinson was born December 10, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts. Over the past 15 years, much has been researched, published, and celebrated about the Belle of Amherst as an avid home gardener. More than one-third of her known poems reference flowers, plants, or gardens, with many more such references in her extensive correspondences with family and friends. Here's one of my favorite of her garden poems. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. One clover and a bee and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. Throughout Dickinson's life, the trees, hedgerows, wildlife, and flowers, the seasonal changing light and weather in her family's home garden and in the natural areas around provided her with both inspiration and companionship. According to biographer Judith Farr, Dickinson's favorite flowers included the gentian, the crown imperial, the geranium, the rose, the daisy, and the Indian pipes that her friend Mabel Todd painted to adorn the cover of the first edition of Dickinson's poems in 1890. Dickinson also compared herself to a daylily, quote, red like her auburn hair, unquote. In 2003, the Emily Dickinson Museum was officially formed on the grounds of Dickinson's historic home known as the Homestead and an adjacent family property known as the Evergreens. Between 2004 and 2005, two scholarly books about the poet and her gardening nature were published. In 2010, the New York Botanical Garden launched a major exhibition titled, Emily Dickinson's Garden, the Poetry of Flowers all about the relationship between Dickinson's poetry and her love of nature and the garden. The Emily Dickinson Museum describes some of the influences leading to Dickinson's close observations of and love for the landscape and the gardens of the homestead in this way. While a student at Amherst Academy, Dickinson studied botany and compiled an herbarium, an extensive leather-bound album of over 400 carefully mounted specimens, which the poet collected herself. She labeled many of these with the genus and species, according to the Linnaean system of classification. As an adult, she cared for exotic plants in a conservatory that was added to the homestead in 1855. Emily Dickinson came from a family of nature lovers. Her mother, Emily Norcross, was an accomplished gardener who passed on her skills to her daughters, Emily and Lavinia. The poet's brother, Austin, shared her extensive knowledge of and delight in the natural world. The Dickinson family's grounds on Amherst's main street consisted of 11 acres of meadow south of the thoroughfare and three acres north of the road on which the homestead and the evergreens are situated. The large garden tended by Emily, Lavinia, and their mother flowed down the slope to the east of the homestead. Situated on two high terraces, the evergreens was surrounded by cultivated planting beds and looked out to the west over a neighbor's orchard. The lawn between the homestead and the evergreens was carefully arranged with an informal distribution of trees and shrubs meant to suggest natural growth. A mix of local and exotic specimens and open areas where family members played lawn tennis and badminton. Over the last few years, the Emily Dickinson Museum has committed to restoring the gardens and landscape of the historic three-acre site. To do so, they have continued to plumb archival material, the poetic evidence, and worked in collaboration with the archaeological services of UMass Amherst. In celebration of the poet's birthday and the age-old interplay of nature and poetry, I'm joined today by Jane Wald, Executive Director of the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, to hear more. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's start with your personal history and your own association with gardens and nature, and how you came to be working at the Emily Dickinson Museum.
1: Well, I can't come from a family of farmers. This goes back a couple of generations, several generations. My own father sort of kicked it up a step when he became an agricultural geneticist after the Second World War. So there was a sense in my own household that uh, farming, gardening, and nature was sort of at the, at the core of our of our family life. Um, well, I took a little detour for a while, um, and then ended up in Amherst, Massachusetts about 30 years ago. Uh, my husband and I uh, bought a little uh, property that turned out to be an old dairy farm from the 1840s in Amherst. We laid out a vegetable garden that was, um, really a-, a lot bigger than we could care for. Uh, mm-hmm. but that was a lot of fun. Uh, this property also had uh, the foundation of an old barn that had fallen in years before, and uh, in a rash moment, he and I decided we would dig it out and create a sunken garden mm. out of out of the foundation. And uh, that project took us lasted a couple of years, but um, it was really uh, very satisfying and gave us the, gave me the kind of garden uh, ultimately that I that I really enjoy. Uh, I think my own interest lies as much in garden architecture as it does in in the plants themselves.
0: What brought you to the Emily Dickinson Museum? My professional background had
1: been in uh, public history, so I had uh, done uh, some work in editing historical manuscripts, uh, in caring for archives, and in uh, historical archaeology at the time I came to the Emily Dickinson Museum, I had just spent seven years on the staff of Old Sturbridge Village, which is a large living history museum in central Massachusetts. And that museum, of course, focuses a great deal on lifeways in the early to mid-19th century, including farming, gardening, putting up seeds, all of the agricultural processes that one would expect. At the time I came to the Emily Dickinson Museum, it was just... You know, A couple of years before the homestead is Emily Dickinson's own home and the Evergreens, which was the home of her brother Austin and his family, I came here just before those two houses, which were owned and operated separately, merged to become the Emily Dickinson Museum and it was a wonderful opportunity it was a, a kind of a brand new venture and i had the great good fortune to be in on the creation of a museum that had some new goals new strategy new direction and has developed very nicely over the past dozen years or
0: so. There are a couple of, of threads in there that I'd love to follow up on. The the idea of life ways and the parallel between what you were doing at your own home, this personal archaeology and excavation of the history and layers of a piece of property and transforming it, I find it really interesting with what's happening at the Emily Dickinson Museum over the past few years and the joining of forces and starting to try and find some of the story that might have been lost of the life ways of Emily Dickinson and her family in these gardens. What was the catalyst for getting started on the garden restorations?
1: Well, yes, you've mentioned those two wonderful books that were published in 2004-2005.
0: The first one was the Judith Farr book, which was The Gardens of Emily Dickinson. That's right. And um, that was published by Harvard University Press in 2004. And then the second one was Emily Dickinson's Gardens, and that was by Marta McDowell and published by McGraw in 2005.
1: Those two books coming out sort of back-to-back, one of them focused very heavily on Emily Dickinson's poetry, her life experience and how she expressed that through her poetry with garden imagery, nature imagery, with also a wonderful chapter on the plants themselves. Mm-hmm. Marta McDowell's book is, um, is is a wonderful gardener's book. Mm-hmm. So they, they come to the topic of Emily Dickinson and gardening from a couple of different perspectives. But yeah. the fact that they both came out very close to each other, and
0: only uh, just a year after the museum was formed, I, I, the confluence of these events was really great. Exactly, yes, and and
1: that is that's in, that's an important point because in the public arena, these two books really sparked imagination among the public. The museum's creation, and just the year before, um, gave provided the first opportunity there had been to think about the remnant of the Dickinson property, the three acres on which the two houses sit as a single unit, Uh, so this new Emily Dickinson Museum could begin to plan for restoration and development of of the the entire site Mm. as as a whole. So that was brand new, and in those first years, the Emily Dickinson Museum had a great deal of work to do in creating uh, restoration plans and philosophies, and um, determining you know, what needed to happen first, what needed to happen second. So in those early years, we did a lot of planning. We focused on improving the systems and infrastructure of the houses, because that was the most urgent thing to do. Uh, and then, uh, because there was such growing public interest in for gardens, uh, and spurred along by horrific exhibit at uh, the New York Botanical Garden mm-hmm. on Emily Dickinson's gardens that was in about 2010 or 11. All of these things combined to sort of provide the, the catalyst for researching her gardens, trying to understand the layout, t- looking at her conservatory and seeing what we could do to reconstruct that structure.
0: There was a wonderful quote by Tom Christopher in 2010 writing for the National Endowment for the Humanities about that exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden saying that y- you could argue that a true understanding of her verse depends on a familiarity with her horticulture, which I, I thought was a wonderful insight into some of the work that's being done at the museum and some of the rereading of her, her letters and her poetry. I also love this multidisciplinary collaboration collaboration going on between the cultural aspects of the museum, that clearly there's a lot of town and community input, the resources of the university, and that reflects so beautifully some of the multidisciplinary aspects of what we understand of Emily Dickinson's life and work, her love of nature, her poetry her correspondence her studying botany in lower school and the creation of her herbarium for you what are the what are some of the methods that the archaeologists are bringing to this that maybe have provided some some surprises or new information now the
1: Emily Dickinson museum is is in a position to sort of look beyond her poetry and the, her, the life that she lived within the walls of the homestead. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, now we can consider this entire property as a unit. And, and we're able to, uh, to portray more of a, of, of a picture of her whole life, uh, where you know, she, uh, she was very um, attached to her brother's family next door, was clearly known as a gardener uh, in her own lifetime. The tools that, that archaeology brings to this story, archaeology is able to fill in um, absence of facts. I'll give you an example, and that is there are no photographs of her garden. There's no sketch of its layout. So uh, as important as it is to us to understand Emily Dickinson's attachment to nature and gardening, we're, we're left with little uh, actual physical evidence of it. Archaeology can help to supply information that's missing from that by uh, going you know, below the ground to find the, the evidence that's still in place. In the case of the conservatory, for example, this is what Emily Dickinson called the little garden within. Mm-hmm. Uh, we discovered, uh, with the help of UMass Archaeological Services that the foundation for the conservatory was still in place below ground. Uh, We found the foundation for the structure. We found the footings for the steps. um, We could see how the conservatory was connected to the house. Um, We knew from a photograph of the conservatory that it was a very small structure, but, you know, archaeology... um, it places this in, in an actual physical context. Uh, also, uh, archaeology is helping us to understand more about the layout of the grounds. We know, again, that there was a very large barn behind the house, but now we don't know exactly where it where it was. We don't know exactly the orientation toward the house. Uh, and the, the barn... Um, you know it contained uh, the barn represented a lot of the the life ways of the family with its you know its uh, cows and pig and carriages and horses and chickens and wells uh, so that's a that is a uh, that's a part of Emily Dickinson's way of life that we have seldom thought about because we focus on poetry and on the poet, uh, but she was busy. She was a very busy person, and her family as well, you know, taking care of themselves as human beings. So being able to reintroduce that dimension of her life, archaeology is helping us to recover, uncover, and recover those facts that eventually we'll be able to uh, interpret more fully for our visitors.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. On December 10th, Emily Dickinson, the poet, gardener, and nature lover, would be 186. In celebration of that, today we're speaking with Jane Wald, Executive Director of the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Mass. We'll be back after a break to hear more about the current archaeological research into and restoration of the gardens surrounding the poet's historic home. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Today we're speaking with Jane Wald, executive director of the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Mass. We're back after a break to hear more about the museum's ongoing study and restoration of the poet's historic gardens. Welcome back. My understanding is that the you have found the evidence and supporting you know, information about the orchard as it once stood, and that that has been um, replanted to to some extent and um, and that work on restoring the conservatory in its now you know newly discovered place and size has started as well. Where are you in the conservatory project?
1: At this point, we have uh, laid the foundation for, reconstructing the conservatory. So there are footings in the ground right now and we'll begin reassembling the structure itself uh, in just in the next few weeks. Hmm. One of the most fascinating things about the conservatory reconstruction is that it is less a replica than it is a reconstruction of the, the actual building itself. And the reason for that is unusual and interesting a fam in uh, the early 20th century, around 1915-1916, the homestead was sold by Emily Dickinson's niece to uh, to another family who lived here for the next 50 years. Well, they found the conservatory in a perhaps a little dilapidated condition and uh, disassembled it. However, uh, they were careful to keep. Elements that of that structure that they could to keep them on site, and in fact, they they actually reused the windows in in uh, building uh, a garage for their 1920 Ford. Uh, so we're able to you know we're able to identify um, three of the four pairs of sash and uh, restore them, refurbish them, uh, and we also have been able to identify the exterior door, and an interior door that led into the house from the conservatory, uh, still here on, on the site, uh, and to use those in the reconstruction of that conservatory as well. So we expect that project to be complete by the end of this year, by the end of 2016.
0: That is so exciting. And so the conservatory will be up, and come spring 2017, the orchard will be in, in full bloom for its first spring, is that right?
1: Yep, yeah, that's right, and we, we believe that uh, uh, there's a, a mixture of heirloom varieties in, in the orchard. Um, those varieties were uh, recorded by Emily Dickinson's niece, Martha, so we've used her uh, testimony to select the varieties that have gone back into that orchard, and we think we, think we might possibly have a very small crop in uh, hmm. in the fall of
0: 2017. So fun. One of the, the questions that I came across in, in doing some of my reading was uh, the idea of how to populate the conservatory. Will you use references from her poetry? Will you use the herbarium that she created? How will you go about populating the, the conservatory?
1: The herbarium, her herbarium, uh, she put that together when she was about 14 years old, I think, and the the conservatory was built for her by her father when she was about 24. Um, over the next years of her life, uh, she lived until the age of uh, 55. So through those 30 years, in her letters and poems, she she makes reference to plants that were grown in her conservatory, those in the garden. So we actually have fairly good documentation of the plants that were grown in the conservatory from her own testimony or that are uh, others around her mm-hmm. uh, who observed what was grown there and grown in the garden so uh, uh, it it appears that the documentation is there to tell us what we
0: should uh, what we should put in there and so we'll hope to see the spice islands in there i hope
1: you you will see
0: the <laughs> islands you only have but across
1: the floor to be in the spice aisles, she says.
0: Yes, that's great. What, for you, have been the greatest challenges of the Garden Restoration Project, Jane?
1: I, I think the greatest challenges of the Garden Restoration Project, and, and we're really just at the very beginning of that, uh, has been the change to that garden over time and the lack of um, really specific Documentation of what has happened. The homestead was built in the early 19th century and most likely had a, a fairly functional, you know, kind of uh, domestic garden that helped uh, to provide foodstuffs for the family at that time. Uh, by the middle of the 19th century, uh, it was probably shifting to a little bit more of an ornamental garden or including more ornamental plants than earlier. Then in the early 20th century, that large garden was kind of dismantled, reduced to um, a, a smaller garden bed that took on a kind of neo-neo colonial look. It was mostly it was a sunken garden surrounded by hedges, and then um, so so that's what we were left with. Uh, but reading Emily Dickinson's letters and uh, those of people with whom she corresponded, and using descriptions of those who saw the garden, um, we get the idea that it was much larger, uh, had a a very large variety of flowers and vegetables, and and trying to come up with a schematic sense of what that garden looked like has been a big challenge, because we're we're relying on um, verbal descriptions, and it's hard to Place that in a uh, kind of a, a spatial plane, mm-hmm. but it, with with archaeology going on on the site, we're finding some surprising things. And mm. one uh, one is uh, one surprise has been a little uh, collection of uh, mid eighteenth century artifacts, which we hadn't expected because we you know we we hadn't known that there was a, a structure on this property that early. So that's been a, that's been an interesting find.
0: Yeah. That will be sort of interesting to, to track and see what, what comes out of that. Um, and where, where are you headed from here with the orchard underway and the, the conservatory underway? What are the next big milestones in, in your sites?
1: For the grounds, the next big milestone is to uh, understand more about location, siting, and layout of the barn. Because that was such a large and prominent structure on the property, we think that it's important to, to be able to have a better sense of its relationship to the house and then with more information about the location of that structure and its appendages, it will be probably a little bit easier to then turn to the to the large garden uh, itself. What we hope to find with the help of UMass Archaeological Services, ultimately, is the dimensions and extent of the garden. That's the ultimate goal in research about the garden. Once we've determined that, then... Now, there are, there are a couple of other features of that garden that are so fascinating. Once we're able to figure out the relationship between the barn and the garden, then we'll be able to put back in place or to represent, at least, these wonderful smaller features. Like a, there apparently was a, a summer house, a kind of a, a gazebo, so to speak, um, at the end of the garden, um, There was a path that ran through the garden that had arbors covered with honeysuckle and perhaps also climbing roses. Mm. Um, All of those things we hope to bring back in time. We
0: need to just take one one step at a time. Yes, like any good garden, one one step at a time. Well, I would love to end with you reading one of your favorite garden or nature-referring Emily Dickinson poems, Jane.
1: Well, sure. There are, of course, uh, many of them, and we get to have a different favorite every day. (laughs) And today, uh, this one is my favorite. Bloom is result. To meet a flower and casually glance would cause one scarcely to suspect the minor circumstance assisting in the bright affair so intricately done, then offered as a butterfly to the meridian, to pack the bud, oppose the worm, obtain its right of due, adjust the heat, elude the wind, escape the prowling bee, great nature not to disappoint, awaiting her that day, to be a flower is profound responsibility.
0: Thank you very much for being with us today, Jane. I appreciate it, and it's been an honor. I'll look forward to the progress on the restoration of these beautiful gardens. Well, thank you, Jennifer. We'll let you know. Jane Wald is Executive Director of the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts. She is leading the restoration of the gardens surrounding Emily Dickinson's historic home. To follow the progress on the restoration, see their website, emilydickinsonmuseum.org. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.